welcome to the AFC podcast. Just as a reminder, you can watch us on YouTube, see our lovely faces. You can also listen if you're on the go on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and CastBox. My name is Victoria Fragnito. And I'm Jim Delizia. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. We have our day player, Christina Rea. She is a writer, director, producer, founder of a thousand things. She's doing quite a bit in the film industry, which is really cool, including she's the founder of quite a few different festivals and her own production company, uh, as well as the writer and director of a upcoming short horror film called The Gaze, which we're going to show a trailer for a little bit later. But for now, we wanted to talk a little bit about festival circuits and the the way those are kind of panning out during COVID and everything, because obviously everything's doing virtual festivals and stuff right now. So that's a little tricky, but also I think the world's kind of starting to spin again, bit by bit. So I don't know, do you think we're anywhere near like a in-person film festival? Um, movie theaters, movie theaters, AMC said something. I, I don't think we're anywhere near an in-person, um, but I think the, the cool thing is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people whose films are in film festivals, and especially when they're not like the huge ones, they're not Toronto, they're not Cannes, they're not Sundance. Um, the smaller ones are streaming their content, which is stuff that you normally wouldn't get access to. I know, um, was it South by Southwest did streaming um, of their content when they had to shut down. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping that like, after when the world does start fully spinning um, and we can, and they can do in-person festivals, they still offer the streaming version of things because these are films that like, you might not have been able to see otherwise. If they don't have a gigantic theatrical release, sometimes they don't make it to a streaming platform or whatever. Um, but that's you know, benefiting the little guy right now because right now, big Hollywood studios, they're not getting their films in front of people. So all the new content that's coming out is stuff that's smaller or ma more manageable or things that are done and have just been editing for a while. Like I've just started rewatching uh, or watching the new season of Umbrella Academy, which just came to Netflix, which is, you know, a big superhero TV show. And that's, it's blowing up more than it normally would because it's, you know, there's nothing else. You know, rewatch Tiger King. What else you got? So, no, I think one one viewing of Tiger King was more than enough. Uh, I might have watched it too many times, and I only watched it once. Uh, <laughs> AMC Theaters is planning on reopening, and for one day only to celebrate their hundred year anniversary, uh, they're going to do fifteen cent tickets, just because that was the original price of tickets in their theaters. Fifteen or five? I'm not exactly sure. I think it's fifteen. 15 cents for a one-day promotion, uh, but they're planning to reopen in six days. So I, who knows what that's going to look like. I feel like, okay, movie theaters are obviously some of the most congested things to go to. So how do you, how do you open this? I feel like it has to be in a way like how you would make a table reservation at a restaurant. You call the movie theater, you say, hey, I need, a, I need a table for four. And they say, okay, well, we have these four seats in this theater. We're going to put you right here. Uh, 
and we're gonna keep you a six feet distance from everybody else and that's gonna be it. Literally every other row of seats, as long as they keep the six foot distance thing, but that's so difficult to micromanage all the little details of making sure people don't bump into each other and making sure you know you gotta clean the seat after they get up and uh, <laughs> They could take a note from live theaters because if you look at the way that they sell tickets, they do, obviously they assign seats, um, but they also have, um, you know, when they have subscribers to shows, uh, those are people who can, you know, you know, buy packages of tickets to see every single show. They can swap them out. They can go to different dates. They can switch all that stuff. So there's a lot of that kind of thing that I feel like would help with movie theaters. Um, I know right now movie theaters, obviously they, no, people are going to be like, oh, it's Friday night. I feel like going. So they don't have to like make reservations and stuff like that. But if they move more in a direction of reserving your spot and reserving the times, that'll definitely help a little more. Um, but I also know that live theaters, they're trying to come back um, very badly. The industry has been hit so hard. Um, and some places are, are, you know, trying to plan out like how do you social distance in the audience how do you do that um you know I, it's it's a really daunting task yeah i don't know i just feel like the film industry and the movie industry and the movie theater industry has been moving towards making everything faster and now it's kind of covid's kind of put them in a spot where they have to check themselves and be like maybe we're going too fast we have to make sure that this stuff, because I've been in the movie theaters too, where you walk in and you can't move because the floor is sticky and it's yeah. gross and they have to clean the theater and it's like, clean the theater, man. There's soda everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and they don't like you, clearly you walk in, the floor is sticky. There's popcorn all over the place. There are, you know, cups still in the cup holders. There's bags of popcorn and candy wrappers on the floor. So like, clearly they did not clean before you got in there yeah so now they have to theater but it's something that needs to be checked before we yeah. come from a global pandemic for sure yeah um, uh, but maybe things are moving more towards streaming i mean they were anyway theaters were not doing as well as they had been in the past so maybe we are moving more towards streaming yeah um, i know we'll disney how. is putting uh, mulan out and stream that for it's going to be on disney plus for an add-on price i believe 30 bucks yep yep which one person might think that's a really expensive movie ticket why would i spend 30 bucks to watch it in my house when i already pay for disney plus but it's because they're selling you the movie ticket to see the movie but they're also selling it with the idea that like you're probably watching it with like five people yeah so they're selling you however like they're selling your household the group movie ticket for 30 bucks so it's it's kind of a deal it's, it's a compromise it's a compromise and i feel like you know that's probably the direction that it's going to move in and and as annoying as it is to pay 30 dollars to watch a film in your own house from your own couch um i if you can't go to the movies and see it in the theater and that's a chunk of their profits and how they actually get it to be as successful as it is, I think it probably ends up being kind of a fair compromise between you paying for your, you know, wife and three kids to go see the film 
to see it for only $30 and then plus all the popcorn and all that crap that you pay for. Yeah, um, I'm curious about the rewatchability of something like Mulan where they say you have to pay 30 bucks to watch it. Am I gonna be able to watch it as many times as I want for 24 hours? Because I'm thinking about, not for myself, but for the guy who's got a six-year-old daughter who wants to watch it and then watch it again and then watch it the next day and then watch it two days later for three times in a row. I'm curious if he has to spend 30 bucks each time or if it's like you pay for it and you have it for 48 hours or something. I mean, I have a feeling they'll probably go with like the Amazon model of like if you rent it, you know, you get 48 hours to watch it um, or 24, depending on whatever. And then they'll probably move to streaming rather quickly after like they'll have like a break of where okay it was available for $30 and now like it's off completely you can't watch it to kind of build up a need and a want for it um, before they put it back on like Disney plus um, for people to watch with their their membership um, well, but, you can't watch Mulan yet but you know what you can watch the gays yes you can <laughs> it's on a uh, horror streaming platform called alter and we're going to talk to the writer director producer creator of it christina rea let's show the trailer for the gays and then we'll bring her on and talk to her Here we have Christina Rea. She's a writer director. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, um, tell us a little bit about how you got into the whole filmmaking thing in the first place. Sure. Uh, you know, filmmaking kind of started with a childhood love of movies. It it wasn't. Um, it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly when I decided to be a filmmaker. I I grew up with a single mom, so my brother and I were home a lot together and watching movies we weren't necessarily allowed to. Um, and so that allowed me to see movies that were above my age range and just kind of the possibilities that existed, both from like a, a genre perspective. I watched a lot of horror movies when I was very little, but also just kind of how you can see so much beyond your own world, like the bubble of your world, right? Through movies and, and empathize with different people. And, um, and I just loved them and I loved writing stories. And I would say that I was gonna make movies when I was older, even though I didn't know what a director was. I didn't know anything about making films. Um, and then eventually by high school, it was kind of a, a lot of people telling me that filmmaking is not actually practical. And like there's no career path to follow. It's it's like access and, you know, people are born into the industry and all of that. Um, and that is all true to, to a, an extent. But um, I just knew I had a passion for, for storytelling, visual storytelling. So I decided to, to study film in college. And, and I kind of realized that a lot of what I had been told was true, that it is an industry based on bias and about access and and all of that um but that the internet was you know kind of 
starting to create avenues for people to actually find their their audiences, their pockets of people that that want to see their stories. And um, I graduated college in 2012. And so it was kind of like prime time for crowdfunding and all of all of the things that were starting to pop up in terms of streaming. And, and yeah, I've just kind of been doing it ever since making movies and, and trying to help other creators make theirs too. Nice. I don't recall what my first R-rated movie was. I don't remember. I remember because I actually grew up and I somehow got into the film industry because my parents didn't want me to watch movies or TV shows as a kid. Mm -hmm. I only could watch on, on the weekends. When I tell people this, they're like, that's ridiculous because now all you do is watch movies and entertain and play video games and things like that. Uh, but I don't remember what my first R-rated movie was, but I, I remember one of the first movies I remember watching or that my parents bought for me on like VHS was Casper the Friendly Ghost. <laughs> and that was one movie I was allowed to watch. Wow. Um, I My mom, we watched movies together a lot and we were... We also watched a lot of TV together, so that was kind of like bonding time, um, especially like primetime TV because she would be home after work in the evenings, and so we would watch like sitcoms together, and uh, we both, my whole family, we loved the Twilight Zone. We loved any kind of marathon, you know, the the Fourth of July marathon and the New Year's Eve marathon, um, so that was kind of like embedded also just generally in my childhood, it was a lot of, a little bit of like the TV is the babysitter to, to some degree, you know. Um, but the first hor horror movie I remember seeing was uh, was Pet Cemetery when I was five. Oh, me too, except I saw it when I was in sixth grade. I didn't sleep for like six weeks. I couldn't, yeah. no. And like, I'm sure if I watched it now, like, and it was the one, who, who was the actress who played Tasha Yar on Star Trek? She was the mom. Oh yeah, that, that version of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't. I'm sure if I watched it now, it's probably not as scary as I remember. But I just pictured that little kid Gage hiding under my bed, waiting to kill me. And I no, I can't. I'm not a <laughs> horror movie person at all. I can't. I get scared at the slightest little noise. I won't be able to sleep for like three weeks. It's not. <laughs> it's not a thing. But your film, um, The Gaze, that actually is coming out today, the day we're shooting this podcast, mm -hmm. um, is that, that's like kind of like a thriller horror it, situation? Yeah, it's, well, it's, it is a horror film. It's, it's like kind of campy though. It's intentionally playful. Um, it's, it's very meta. It's kind of in the vein of like 90s meta horror you know like kind of the screams yeah. of, of the world um and it was rooted very much in like re-watching a lot of my favorite 90s shows like I had just finished a Buffy rewatch before I, I before I made it um but it is a commentary on kind of the male gaze and how it's embedded in pretty much everything from like the day-to-day -day life and media that we consume so uh you made that through your company Congested Cat yeah. Yeah. When did you start your own company? That that was in 2012, uh, fresh out of college. I essentially just needed a brand to to put my um, a couple of shorts that I had made, but also my first feature because I made my first feature right after graduating. And 
we were crowdfunding for that and I needed to form an LLC and I needed to just build some some sort of you know parameters around making it for for liability reasons and then I was like well let me just come up with something that can be the the umbrella for all of this stuff and it sort of took off because I found then that people were really remembering the name of the production company and shortly after we started a monthly screening series called IndieWorks and that kind of became its own thing that people were really excited about and so I didn't necessarily set out to start a production company. I just kind of wanted an umbrella for the things I wanted to make and do. Um, but it, it sort of got ahead of itself and, and took off. And now, yeah, we, we're like a seven-person um, company, and we have some people that we frequently collaborate with as well that we bring in for projects. But it's, it's mainly – we don't do work for hire. It's really like a collective of voices, and we kind of barter on each other's projects, essentially. Nice. Tell us so, about IndieWorks yeah. as well, because that's yeah. an, it, it, basically a film festival that yeah. I'm on hold because of COVID a little bit. Yeah. But tell yeah. us about that. Sure. So IndieWorks was born out of my own experiences at film festivals in the city. There, there are some really great ones, but there are some that are very, um, I don't know, they're kind of shady. They're like, they have headcount demands on filmmakers to bring in a certain amount of people for ticket prices. And it's, and it's like, you're sitting in a room with just the other filmmakers and the people, you know, and everyone has paid a lot of money and you just watch your film and you leave. And that was it. And, and I feel like I was experiencing that a lot with these smaller festivals here. And um, I felt like there was space to create more of, a welcoming collaborative environment. And so I found, this was in 2013, um, I found a bar that had a projector and a screen. And initially it was sort of like, it wouldn't be private. We People could still come in and we would have sort of the front space and it was free. And I had worked out a deal with them where they would make money off of the bar. And, um, and the point of it was, you don't have to tell your cast and crew that they have to pay to come see the film that they work on, right? And we're gonna have really thoughtful Q and A's that replicate what I was missing from school, you know, that sort of peer review and and feedback experience and, and talking about the craft and about the creative intentions behind the work. Um, and so that's really how it started and it really took off. And, and then eventually we kind of locked down the, the whole bar because we were bringing in so many people and our original location was in the Lower East Side um, and they, it was a two floor space. And we had, at one point we had both floors because we had like 120 people there every month. We would do it once a month, um, screening about six films. And then they, sh they shut down unfortunately because of rent prices in, in the Lower East Side. Um, and so then we moved to Queens and we were in Long Island City for a while, which was really convenient for me because I'm also, you know, in Queens. And our venue now is in Sunnyside and it's really great. Um, but of course, nothing is is open for indoor seating right now for COVID. So I don't know exactly how long we'll be on hiatus, but we're trying to keep it going by sharing playlists of alumni projects on our social channels. Uh, but it's been a really lovely experience because we don't screen our own work, but it is a way for us to 
meet other filmmakers and kind of learn from what they're doing, seeing what's out there. I just really love like curation and programming too. So sort of the thematic programming part of it where I can sort of take you on a journey through a few films is, is really lovely. Um, and the, my favorite part of it is that we have people who met at a screening of ours in you know year two or three, they come and they screen a film that they end up making together in year six, year seven. So that's been really lovely that it has become this space where people can meet collaborators because that's really what I wanted because New York is, is small in some ways, but also very big and can be very lonely and it can be hard to meet other creators without like paying for networking events and without, uh, again, like paying for festivals that sometimes are worth it and sometimes are not. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's really what IndieWorks is. It's a collaborative space to see work and support each other. It's really cool. It's almost like you're playing matchmaker too, and you're getting the crew members to come together and uh, that's fun. That's awesome. Trying to, yeah. <laughs> My cat oh. is in the background, so. <laughs> I love a cat guest star. Um, normally, I'll have a cat in the background, one or two, depends. <laughs> you have black cats, so he might be hiding under the bed or. Yeah, you never know. You just see like a pile of laundry move on the bed and that's a cat, not laundry. <laughs> I love black cats. Uh, I've got a big, fat, fat one and a really, really tiny one. They're complete opposite of each other. So you never know <laughs> who's going to pop in. <laughs> but um, you also work for Seed and Spark, correct? I do. Yeah. Nice. So you're, you're director of education for them? That's right. Yeah. So I, I, I find that so interesting that a, a crowdfunding company has a director of education. I don't think I've ever come across that before. Um, so what, what exactly does that entail for Student Spark? Yeah, so a big thing about Student Spark is yes, we're a crowdfunding platform and that's kind of what we're known most as, but really our main mission is to kind of shift power structures within the industry. And that means providing access to information that is usually very guarded. And so when I first joined, I, I was invited to be part of the team um, when the company was just about three years old and really had just started to get traction because I was a very early crowdfunder. I crowdfunded twice on Kickstarter um, in 2011 and 2012 and not a lot of people were doing it yet and not a lot of people were doing it sort of successfully in the way that I was um, because it was a lot of friend and family funding, but as someone who grew up with a single mom and I don't really have a lot of wealth within my family and I don't have a lot of industry access, I don't have any industry access within my family, um, I saw crowdfunding as an opportunity to try and even out the playing field a little bit. So it wasn't like, okay, I don't have family members who can write me checks, but I do have the social media tools to reach people who might be excited about what I want to make and might, might want to join me. And so I crowdfunded a short and then crowdfunded a feature. And then I started getting invited to speak on panels about crowdfunding and sort of rethinking it as not just like begging for money, which I think a lot of people perceived it as, especially then. Um, but as like audience building and as a, a way to allow people to participate in making a thing, especially if they love movies and they don't make them. Um, so then I met Emily Best, who's the CEO of Seed and Spark in 2013 when the company 
had just started and she kind of convinced me to switch platforms because there were a lot of different reasons, but mainly that it was film focused and that it had the same kind of ideology that I did, that it was about the audience more than the money. The money was kind of secondary. It was really about exciting people first and getting them to want to join you and then the money comes, right? Um, so I joined initially as as a, a crowdfunding specialist who gave feedback to campaigns. And to your initial question, education was always part of the platform because what they really wanted to do was reframe that, like that, the idea that you're not asking for money, you are asking for, for support in making a thing and creating a thing, you're asking people to join you. And also that the system is broken as it currently exists because the power doesn't lie in the hands of the creators. There are all these middlemen that exist between you and your audience, between you and your potential for profit when we're talking about distribution. And so it was really like, let's build this platform so that people can start just making their content through their communities and through their audience, but also let's get creators to start understanding that they don't have to work within the system as it currently exists because that system is is filled with bias and and privilege and and this was before me too and all of that kind of stuff came out right so um that was really the the initial spark of it and then i eventually worked my way up and in my role i have really kind of expanded it to to talk about distribution. We spoke to a whole bunch of distribution experts across different fields, and I put together a really robust workshop to kind of give people that transparency that just doesn't exist in that world. Um, you know, people don't understand, like, what, what do deals typically look like? How do you get those deals? How do, how, what is a waterfall? How does money trickle down? What, how do you know if you're getting the same thing as someone else got? And like, that kind of stuff is just, really trying to get filmmakers to understand that they have more autonomy than they realize and that you don't have to wait to be picked or take what, what whatever you get just because it's the only thing you're getting offered, that there are other avenues you can pursue yourself. Um, and so that's really what I do with my role. I, I develop curriculum around kind of independence, retaining your IP um, and building a direct connection to your audience. I do a lot of teaching myself, but I also train a couple of other internal team members to, to teach as well. Um, and really my job is to kind of like be on the ground literally, but right now more just sort of figuratively in the internet space um, to, to get a sense of what the struggles are of creators and try and build avenues to support them and provide more information and knowledge. And so right now, for instance, during COVID, we've been doing something called the Creative Sustainability Sessions, where we invite people like Mark Duplass and John Ridley and certain people that we've built connections with to just do like creative um, virtual sessions that are free and just are sharing kind of inspiration and and information um and th those are things that it's like okay people have this need right now or they're feeling really stuck right now or whatever it is and who do we know that can provide something that will support them and and then of course we are at the end of the day still a business so it's like trying to also get them to be aware of the fact that they can use us for crowdfunding if that is something they're interested in pursuing interesting yeah. Kind of when, when you were talking about how you should build your community and build your audience before the money, the first thing that popped into my head, I'm not going to lie, is TikTok. 
because mm. you have all these people that are on TikTok and legitimately they're getting rich from it. They're, they're making tons of money and thinking about it, like when you don't think about it, you're just like, oh, they have millions and millions of views. Of course they're making money. But how does that, how, how do you translate views into money? Because it's not like TikTok is mailing people checks because their video went viral. So there's right. an actual business behind that of like, build your community up, get the millions of views, have the thousands and thousands of followers that follow your work, and then start putting out content for those people. And then the money yep. will come is essentially the idea behind it. TikTok is kind of like the seed and spark for dummies. If that <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But I, yeah, I think that people that don't know. Further people... Professional sense and the more business savvy and trying to develop it more. Absolutely. Yeah. It, the thing is people, I think initially thought with crowdfunding that you kind of just put it up and people discover it and, and we'll just give you money. And it's like, that's not a reality. Right. And, and if no one knows it's there, how do they find it? And there are obviously so many other projects. And so it is so much about building that audience, building, even if it is just with one project, really putting in the work to get viewership of that. And then kind of getting people to want to join you on your journey to making more. Uh, and, and that, and TikTok is a great example of that, especially right now and how people are using it. Yeah, TikTok so, is weirdly the viral sensation version of itself. Like it's, like in terms of social medias, it came out of nowhere. And then everything going on with two, Trump is trying to ban it and Microsoft's trying to buy it and it's owned by China. They're stealing our information. They're watching us at all times. At least someone's watching this podcast. That makes <laughs> someone's watching the podcast in China, just making sure that we're not divulging government secrets. <laughs> yeah, if they're looking for government secrets, I don't think they're going to come to the AFC podcast, but you never know. You the nuclear launch codes are, and as follows, no. Um, so, Christina, how, how can people um, like take these courses that you offer, these workshops that you offer through, through Seed and Spark? How can someone do that? Uh, so they can just go to seedandspark.com slash events, or they can go to our Eventbrite directly. We, it's always free to sign up and um, you, you get a YouTube link. They're usually live. The workshops that aren't these kind of celebrity-driven ones, like the ones I just talked about with Mark Duplass and John Ridley, those tend to be in Zoom. So you kind of you need to RSVP to to get the link to to watch, but they're still free. Um, the public ones that are celebrity-driven, those just stream on our YouTube. So you could also just subscribe to YouTube, our YouTube channel, and you'll see that. That's awesome. That's awesome. So also we mentioned earlier that your film Gaze is. <laughs> releasing today the day we film um where where are you releasing it how is that how is that getting out to the public so that's being released by alter which is a platform owned by um gunpowder and sky they specifically release short horror films and um it's on their youtube channel and their facebook page and it's pretty exciting like it's been out for an hour and it's already at over five thousand views um that's amazing it's so awesome they they have a really uh, devoted following so i'm very excited but i'm also very nervous about going to read the comments and uh, and yeah. seeing what what oh, trolls might be there yeah trolls especially on horror movies and stuff i know 
internet trolls are the lowest form of humanity. Yeah. Trolls. But they're it, it, people that take the time. Look, it, it's different too if some if a filmmaker comes in and says, I have some criticisms about your film. This was mm -hmm. good. This was good. But this is what I think could have been better. That's totally different. Open to criticism. At least I am. You know, some people yeah. just straight up not. This is my vision. Deal with it. But <laughs> when it comes to like trolling on the internet, you got to find a better hobby. Yeah. You just it is take those things serious. It is hard, you know. I released my second feature on Amazon um, last June, and some of the reviews are just so mean spirited. And it's like, what is in you that makes you feel the need to spend the time to type this out? You know, it's like that's their response. Like, who <laughs> is your response to that review? Yeah. Yeah. But then there's really lovely stuff that I do want to see. So it's hard to kind of not look because I don't want to not see the positive. And there, there are always at least some positive things. And, and, and that's, I wish there were a way to just like filter from my vision. Um, <laughs> and then also like, I do want to see, like you said, the, the constructive criticism. So it's like, show me that, show me the positive. Just don't show me the hateful stuff. That's going to make me feel bad the rest of the day. <laughs> that should be like a new job that they create for each platform that you stream is like, you have a person who filters the comments, like the positive, the actual constructive criticism and the crap that doesn't have anything to do with anything. I'm, I'm so not just... why this is a bad idea. <laughs> okay. right. Park did this. They had a whole episode where Cartman, I, he, he was being bashed by internet trolls and he was like emotionally couldn't take it. So he hired Butters to filter all of his internet content. And he did such a good job that they called Demi Lovato and now he was responsible for Demi Lovato's Twitter and filtering all the bad messages on her Twitter. And it just steamrolled to a point of course, South Park takes it to the furthest extent, mm -hmm. but it just pointed out that people are shitty on the internet and you should just ignore. <laughs> Leave it be. Take the positive, take the constructive, forget about the negative because it's all stupid. Mm -hmm. Life lessons from South Park. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So after COVID is done, Mm -hmm. and we can get back out there and we can actually collaborate and do things again. What's, what do you have kind of coming down the pipeline? Do you have anything solid planned out for now or? Uh, so I, I've been in the process of writing what I hope to be my third feature for a while. It's been hard to get in the, the sort of mind space to write lately. Yeah. Um, but my goal is to kind of just be revising that during this time. And I had hoped in 2020 to kind of start development, start talking to potential producers who, who could uh, help with further money because I'm really good at crowdfunding and I'm really good at audience building, but in the investor game is really not my strength and I do need a producer who's more in that world. Um, and I have been talking to a few people, but I just kind of put it on pause once, once the pandemic hit because it just, I don't have a real timeline now. Um, but that's kind of my main focus, and I do have two shorts that are on the circuit right now that uh, that I made after the gaze that um, are, you know, they're screening in virtual festivals. It's, it's 
a little bittersweet, um, but it's still nice to, to have the opportunity to be talking about them and reaching people. And so I'll probably just put them online at the end of this year. Um, and I have been making short films starring my cats in quarantine. So that's kind of been how, how I think Sign me up. I'm so on board to watch all of those. <laughs> Nothing less from Congested Cat Productions. Right? <laughs> it fits so well. <laughs> well, I, I, I gotta say, like, it's gotta be difficult during the pandemic when so many people are not making money, are, you know, laid off, are, you know, investors have to be, like, tighter with their money because nothing is going on right now. That's got to, it's such a weird time to, like, think about how do you approach people for money? Like, yeah. you know, crowdfunding, obviously, you know, you have to have the mindset of, of building, you know, your audience. But, you know, right. the whole other side of that, the investors, that's it's such a weird time. Yeah, it is. And honestly, even crowdfunding is hard. Like I wouldn't necessarily advise anyone to try it right now because yeah, even if you are audience building, if you do need money, a lot of your audience might be out of work. Uh, a lot of your audience might be giving to things like, you know, bail funds and mutual aid right now, which is very necessary um, because we're, we're in a very, very specific moment where where people are trying to give to multiple causes. Uh, and so normally I would say that you can crowdfund and try and find investors as well because it's like a totally different ask, but the unemployment rate is just beyond anywhere it's ever been uh, really um, since the previous century. So like it's, it's, it's a very different context. And so I don't know when I would even feel comfortable dipping my toes back into the fundraising yeah. sort of world for my own personal projects, knowing the state of everything. And also just like, it's not just the money. I know many people who have gotten COVID. I know have people who have lost family to it. So it's a, it's a very sort of scary time that we're living in really. Yeah, it's it's a weird balance that we all like, you know, while you're stuck in quarantine, you want to keep creating, you want to mm -hmm. keep like pushing your projects and stuff like that. But you also want to make sure that the important things that are happening in the world, people, you know, you give your attention to them and you make sure that there's there's space for those voices to be heard because they need to be heard. Um, right. So it's a weird balance of trying to like stay, you know, sane, stay focused and, you know, mm -hmm. keep your momentum going so that you don't feel completely crushed under this time that we're in. Right. But you also want to make sure that like those voices are being heard, those stories are being told yeah. and you're, you're helping rather than hurting the cause. It's, we're definitely in an interesting time frame. Yeah. Something that I, with my role at Students Work, I've been trying to do is sort of co connect people more so that it is like, if you really want to stay creative right now, if you really want to make something, maybe you can meet some filmmakers who are making a really timely piece and it is sort of their story to tell that you can help with in some way, you know? And, and that I think is an avenue to pursue, especially if you are like a producer type, that I think that is a way that you can stay creative. Um, writing is, is I think what most people are focused on right now in general, just because it is the one thing you can do alone and you can do without necessarily needing money and without needing to feel like uh, 
what you're writing has to be about this moment, right? Because it can be for the future. It can be for years from now. Um, though on the flip side of that, I do find it hard to think about like, what is life like in a couple of years from now? And how do I write characters in that? And, and that's a challenge. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about some of the other projects you have coming up or in the pipeline or things that you're working on. Sure. So I have two shorts that I shot at the end of 2019. One is called Affliction. It's it's kind of a chilling drama with a genre spin to it. Um, it's a it's about a confrontation between two co-workers and that is on the circuit right now. Um, it's screening at a bunch of virtual festivals. One I'm really excited about is Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. It's usually in um, San Diego, but it's going virtual this year. And the block that we're part of is a bunch of social commentary horror through like a kind of female lens. And so I'm really excited about that one. I definitely recommend checking it out um, if that interests you. And my other short is called Game Brunch. It also has a genre spin, but it's a comedy. It's a totally different direction from that one. And it's really just fun and it's about friendship. Um, and that hasn't, it is premiering soon, but it hasn't hit the circuit yet. So there will be opportunities sort of towards the end of 2020 and into 2021. Um, so if you go to congestedcat.com, you'll be able to see all the upcoming festivals and opportunities to catch them if you're interested. Very cool. Yeah, that's super exciting. Thanks. Well, so we ask all of our our day players on the podcast to suggest films for us to watch. Um, and you suggested Parasite. Yep. So can you tell us a little bit as to why that was your film of choice? I mean, I just love it. Have you both seen it? Yes, yes. just now. <laughs> okay. For the podcast, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I'd be curious what you think as someone who isn't so into genre uh, films. But I, I love it because... A, I had no idea what it was going to be going in. Um, I do love, I do love films. I love South Korean cinema in general, um, but especially, especially genre films. Um, and this one I thought was going to be more horror-y, like Parasite with that name. I thought it was going to be a different kind of, and it was just like a really dark comedy with this really, really striking commentary at the end and like the sh the sort of tonal shift that it makes I don't think many movies do that well and I think this one did it extremely well and so I just love it I think it's kind of entertaining from start to finish in very different ways along the way um, and it also speaks to a lot of kind of the social issues that I care about that I think are unfortunately not only specific to South Korea yeah yeah, I, this film, I mean, I've heard so much about it, you know, with especially with it winning at the Oscars this year and all of that. Um, and I, I just hadn't sat down to watch it yet. Um, and despite all of that, I still didn't know much about it going mm -hmm. into it, um, which I, I love that, that I didn't know. And this whole film, I didn't know what was happening and I never... You know, you know how in films when you watch, you can sometimes be like a step ahead and be like, I bet this is what's gonna happen. And generally you're right. Mm -hmm. That never happened in this, ever. Yeah. I think the only time it happened was when like, I started to see like, oh, he got his sister hired. So then he's gonna get, right. you know, the, like that's the only time I was like, I see what's happening. The rest of it, I was like, nope, no idea. 
I had no idea that was gonna happen. I had no idea that was gonna happen. And it's one of the few films that actually does that and did it so well. You, it took so many turns that you weren't expecting. It, it was, I'm very glad that someone suggested Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a good choice, and I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> glad. So you uh, you like uh, you're you're into South Korean cinema. Um, how did you kind of get exposed to that whole? Sure, uh, I saw in college a movie called "I Saw the Devil," um, which is a really, really powerful film. I would say it's kind of one of my favorites in a world of like thirty favorite movies. <laughs> um, it's it's about a a man who whose um, partner is I don't know if it's his wife or fiance I can't remember but she's murdered by a serial killer and he spends basically the rest of his life just pursuing the killer and catching him and torturing him and letting him go and it slowly starts to shift where it's like who is the monster in this story and it really kind of makes you question humanity because he starts to question himself and it's like it really the commentary within it is how like vengeance destroys you right and and by the end the person he sees in the mirror is not the person that that he was in the beginning of the movie and that to some degree he's just as as horrific as the person he's been blaming for his life being ruined. And it's just very complex and very well acted and also really chilling and, and intense and has like these horror elements to it. Um, and I just, I do love, that movie kind of opened my eyes to then just the style of filmmaking in general that, that South Korean cinema tends to have, especially when it's about genre. Um, I think they balance tone really well. I think that they can kind of get away with longer movies than Americans can. I often think most American movies that are over 90 minutes are too long, but I don't feel that with South Korean films. Um, and they just have like really interesting nuances at play. It, because it isn't like a Hollywood system where the things you hear about mostly are these really formulaic things. They, they don't have that. So like the things that make it here just tend to be excellent, I think. And they're not as, as married to formula. Um, and so they just get very creative. They get very weird. I like weirdness, you know, when you're just kind of deciding to take a weird angle. Um, there's another film called Mother where, where there, there's a whole thing with dumplings. It's very weird. Like, I don't want to spoil anything, but I just like that. I just like the kind of exploration of weirdness and mother. Is that with uh, Jennifer Lawrence? Is that her? No, that's a South Korean film. It's it came out before that mother. Okay, and so it's totally different. American mother. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I just kind of like that there aren't as many restrictions on what is worth exploring. Where whereas here it is very, very kind of mainstream like this is we're only going to put money into this because it has the widest kind of sort of commercial success viability um yeah and and yeah and, and so and parasite i think is a great example of of a film that you wouldn't expect to win an oscar or like wouldn't 
have have the acclaim that it has gotten here. I saw it pretty early and was like, this is my favorite movie of the year. And I don't know if it's really going to get talked about, but then it just kept getting talked about. And so that was really exciting to watch. And so I hope that that opens up more, um, just more opportunity for, for Americans to explore South Korean cinema. Yeah, I mean, it. I, I don't, I've never seen um, a South Korean film before. This was my first one. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really know what to expect at all. Um, certainly not what I watched. I did not expect any of it, but it was amazing. It was a great ride. Um, and it was so smart and so well-crafted and, and just even, you know, the, the cinematography was stunning in this whole thing. Um, it, the whole thing is just really well-crafted from the script to the acting to the actual filmmaking. Um, so I'm, I think I'm excited to watch some more, uh, yeah. Genres that I'm not used to. <laughs> um, Bong Joon-ho, the director, he, they just put his entire filmography on Hulu. So like you can, you can dive into it if, if that's of interest. And he does have some that are like the host is a film that's, that has a similar social commentary, but is just like kind of all comedy. It's like a, like a co comedic monster movie in a way. Um, but then he has some that are really dark. Like I would say mother, the one that I referenced that is, a pretty dark one. And so you can kind of go, like you can sort of take Parasite as this middle ground and go in either direction, depending on which sort of tone is more interesting to you. Nice, that's awesome. I'm curious what you think the future of the Oscars is going to be. Because now, no idea. <laughs> did it win the last Oscar ever? Is the world, right. did we finish? Are we done giving movies awards? Because 2020 was only a month and a half long before the mm -hmm. industry like collapsed in on itself like a dying star along with yeah. the world. But what what do you think? Do you think they're gonna lump in 2020 with 2021 and just do it all in one? I really don't know. I think that for one thing they're going to have to Okay, so I hope I hope that this is a way that movies can qualify for the Oscars without having to do the theatrical runs that would normally be, be a requirement. And so that means that smaller movies might might actually have an avenue in because previously they, they were disqualifying a lot of titles, especially like Netflix titles and things like that, which aren't necessarily small movies, right? But that was like a precedent then for movies I can't afford theatrical runs would just never have an, a door in. Um, because of where we are, if they want to nominate any 2020 movies, and do things as usual, they will be now setting a precedent that you don't have to do a theatrical run to qualify. And I hope that that paves a new path. Um, but I think- On the AFC podcast. All right. <laughs> Lower budget films are making strides at the Oscars. <laughs> we'll we'll see. Astoria and the Astoria Filmmakers Club. <laughs> Done. <laughs> I mean, I hope so. But I, they also could do what you suggested that they might just combine. 2020 and 2021. Well, the and last that I read about it, um, they are including films that may have not have a theatrical release initially, as long as they promise a theatrical release at some point. So they're still kind of like shutting the door a little bit. Um, 
I don't, I'm, I'm hoping that they, you know, eventually just get rid of that whole, you have to have a theatrical release. Yeah. Because it also, even outside of sort of money, it doesn't make sense for every film to do a theatrical. When you think about who goes to the theater, who has money to spend on an independent film at the theater, it's like, that is maybe not the best way to get it seen. And you're limiting what the strategy can be for each individual film if they want to qualify. And, and we should be embracing, I personally believe we should be embracing creative avenues of distribution to meet audiences where they are. Because that's the only way creators can actually have any level of making any kind of money on the back end is if they don't just like waste money on a theatrical, even though no one's ever going to go and pay for it, but they paid for it. And then it hits digital and it's sort of like lost the momentum of its initial release. Uh, but this is like stuff that I talk about uh, like every day in our, in the <laughs> workshops that I teach. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, but it's, it's really necessary. Like um, the film that uh, my fiance has been working on for a long time is called the gift of 65 roses and it has to do with cystic fibrosis mm-hmm. and people with cystic fibrosis, even before the pandemic, could not be within six feet of another person with cystic fibrosis. So if you put out a film, like they put out um, Five Feet Apart, Mm -hmm. which I have very strong feelings about that film. Um, They put out Five Feet Apart before and it had a theatrical release and it's like, well, okay. You don't know who in the audience could have CF and they could be sitting directly next to someone else with it. Why did you not, like, sure, maybe do a theatrical release, but maybe also immediately put it Mm-hmm. out on streaming on a platform where people with CF, it's made for them. Right. It's their, their experience. Why are you not meeting the audience where they are? Right. Uh, so I, do, I, I hope that that's... I do too. Okay. And I, I do think that what this moment is maybe, hopefully, and I do feel making us realize is that the way we've done things have not, have been very um, sort of, able-bodied focused and, and that there are different abilities and, and different um, reasons for why people may need to watch movies at home exclusively. And now that that's the standard, I think it will be hard to just like go back to the way it was without being aware of that, that we, we created a way for our movies to be more accessible for very specific people and that we should continue that. And so I, I do hope and I do think that at least some studios may choose to do like a simultaneous release at the very least so that there will be more access and, and people don't have to risk going out for whatever reason. It may be a risk if they really want to watch a movie, especially if it's one that's for them and, and really resonates with them. That's what I hope. And, and I do feel like I feel like this is a big shift for all the terrible things there are about this moment, but there also is a shift of, of more awareness on a, on a variety of levels and that people, it will be very hard to go backwards into pretending we're not aware of those things anymore, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes it, as awful as it is, it takes something so big um, to really, really shift as many opinions and as many you know, minds uh, behind all this stuff, because otherwise, you know, people, people, unless it affects them directly, they're not, they don't make these changes, they don't make these shifts. So until there is something that kind of wakes everybody up, some jarring movement, you know, people, we would have been going down the same road and and these avenues may not have opened as as quickly as hopefully they are going to open. That's right. 
Well, Christina, thank you so much for joining us on the AFC podcast. Um, it's so awesome. All of the multiple things that you're doing. Um, we're going to link all of um, Congested Cats stuff and um, Seed and Spark so that people can learn from you, can watch your films, can get connected and um, keep an eye out for all of the things that you're doing. But we really appreciate you hopping on and uh, talking with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Everyone go check out The Gaze, which has been released as of the day we are filming this. So it's going to be in the future, it's going to be out there on Alter. Everyone go check it out and tune into all of her stuff. Thank you. Hey guys, so the goal of the Astoria Filmmakers Club is to help filmmakers in the area produce their own original work and make films that we can all enjoy. The best way to show support of this is to make a donation, big or small, to the club. Your donations will go directly towards the club, this podcast, and any future productions that the AFC takes on. Just scan the QR code below and it will bring you directly to the club's official Venmo page. You can make any size donation you want and we would really appreciate it. It will go directly towards us and towards members of the club and they can make cool videos and content and films and uh, we just love your support. Please show your support and make a donation today. All right, that was Christina Rea. Thank you so much, Christina, for coming on and talking to us about your career and all the things that you're doing in the industry, we really appreciate it. And for your movie choice, Parasite, the Oscar winner, the last Oscar winner, potentially. Oh. <laughs> that was what the future of the Oscars are going to be. The last thing on my mind during all of COVID is, gee, I wonder who's gonna win an Oscar. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, if the Oscars never even come back, I probably would have forgotten about them. And I work in the film industry. I mean, it, it, it is kind of, it's not kind of, it is rather elitist. It's a way for Hollywood to pat itself on the back and say, hey, we did a great job. Look how excellent we are. And a lot of times, huh? It can be that. But yeah. I think in this case with Parasite, it's yes. one of those weird exceptions where a movie that's totally from outside of Hollywood, literally from the other side of the planet, came through and dominated and won. It's so rare. It happened with Moonlight and yeah. with this. And See, if, if that's the direction that these award shows are going to go, then yes, keep them around. But I, you know, it has to be consistently moving in that direction. But Parasite, such a wild freaking ride. I didn't expect anything that was happening in that film. Obviously, major spoilers ahead. If you haven't watched Parasite yet, skip this part of the podcast because we're going to talk about a lot. <laughs> Don't skip this part of the podcast. Pause here, go to Hulu, watch this two and a half hour movie, and yes. then come back and finish the rest of the podcast. Yes, uh, do that. It's on Hulu. Uh, so is apparently Christina told us about, um, I want to say his name correctly. Mm -hmm. Bong Joon Ho. Is that his Am I saying it? I said it. Yep. Bong Joon-ho is the director, the writer, the producer. He basically is the brain behind the operation of Parasite. His entire filmography is apparently on Hulu. So there's more to watch out there. Very cool. Um, Parasite kind of blew me away when I first watched it. I first saw it like a year ago. And it was just a wild 
it, it's it's sort of it's kind of like a thing where you're like, I can't believe these people are kind of scheming their way into these jobs and getting all these weird positions in this one house, this whole family. And then people start getting stabbed. And there's a bunker. And there's a guy hiding in the bunker who doesn't remember. He thinks he's like praising gods above him by triggering Morse code. And like, what? Uh, this film, in a way, has you, it, it makes you hate everyone and also feel bad for everyone at the same time. You hate everyone for all the, you know, all the shitty stuff that they do to other people. Um, sometimes for survival, sometimes out of spite, sometimes out of pure ignorance for what other people go through. Um, but then, you know, it also has you like feel bad for every single person in this situation. You feel, you, I don't know, I, at the end I was like, why am I feeling bad for this family that schemed their way into, you know, and took advantage of, of the, these wealthy people. I feel bad for them watching like their daughter get killed, their son, you know, his head was smashed and was, you know, wounded very badly. Um, the father now can't see his kids, like for his, his family ever again, he's gotta go into hiding. And then you feel bad for the, the elitist family, the rich, ignorant people who have no idea what other people are going through. Like even just that scene in the car after the big flood that they had um, in the section of town where the um, family is from, where it's flooded, sewage is coming up, all of their possessions are ruined, and then they have to go back to work the next day and pretend to be these people, you know, um, and Mr. Kim is his driver name. Um, he's driving the mother, madam, he's driving her, and she's talking about how great the rain was and it washed away all the pollution and all that stuff. And you could just see it on his face. He's like, wow, fuck you, lady, seriously. Like, it just destroyed my whole neighborhood. Like, not just my home, but my whole neighborhood. And yet you feel bad for that elitist family at the end when everything goes to shit and then Mr. Park is killed, you know. Oh, it's, and not to mention the people in the basement. <laughs> like this, this is a freaking wild ride. It is such a wild ride. I mean, it's, it's hard to watch this movie and not go through those emotions that you're talking about where you're thinking, okay, these are elite leeching off of this rich family, but also they're getting treated really poorly and the rich family doesn't even think about it. They're just like thinking that these people are like different people, but it's all based on lies. They're all lying to each other. It makes me think like, cool, who's living in my house when I go away, you know? Yeah. So I'm like, it, it just makes you think. It makes you think about a lot, about who's lying to you. It basically reminded me of every job interview I've ever had where someone said, tell us about your qualifications. And I bullshitted so hard until I had the job. And then I got there and I was like, don't let them know how little you know. <sighs> like well, you, <laughs> you go into the movie thinking that the family is the parasite that you know the title is about. And yes, they are parasites, but so are the freaking rich people at the top. 
So like, you know, it doesn't, it's, it's a brilliant commentary on the classism, you know, particularly in South Korea, because that's where it is, but anywhere else. I mean, there, it's, look at what's going on here in America. Like it's such, I think that's one of the reasons why it resonated so hard is that we are in, you know, even before COVID, like we're in the times that we're in. Um, I, I, this film literally, I, I was never ahead of it, except for like that one instance, you know, as soon as he got his sister hired, I was like, as soon as she said, oh, you know, I'm looking for a good art teacher. I was like, ah, this is how it's going. But then after that, no idea. When the housekeeper got fired, I thought she was gone. I didn't know she was coming back. When she came back, I didn't know what she came back for. When she went down into the bunker in the basement that I didn't know was there, and she started screaming, honey, like, oh my God. Every scene after the the lady comes back is a what the fuck moment. Yep. Yep. The family, you think that they're just gonna kind of leech off this family, and then they found this weird fairy tale ending of their own, and then you find out that more going on and how how quickly it could go go wrong for them mm-hmm. and e- even if that woman hadn't come back the other nanny and revealed the crazy husband in the basement and all this other shit they essentially basically said like the when the family comes back the rich family they're all just camping out in the living room enjoying pretending to be a rich family so it's like that could have screwed them up too. Just how quickly it all could have gone wrong. And I think it all just started to go wrong and then thus steamrolled over itself. I don't know how the rich family didn't catch them in that moment when they came back from the camping trip and there were like people hiding under cabinets and under the table for like nine hours. And there was messes just shoved under the carpets and like, I mean, that's being in the front yard, backyard, whatever. That's just commentary in and of itself. That's commentary about how blind they are to anything other than themselves. You know, it's, they're so self-absorbed, so self-absorbed, and they have no inkling of what reality is like for anyone else in the world. They don't, they don't notice it. They don't care. I mean, even when they're laying there on the couch thinking it smells like Mr. Kim, you know, he has a particular smell, which is what sets him off, that he smells like poor people or whatever they're, what they're insinuating is like people who are at the subway have a particular smell. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you smell that and you only ever smell it in your car, you'd think you'd be like, is he here? Like something, but no, no, no. It's, it's, I think it's brilliantly done in how they, you know, portray each class and each group of people in the way that, and what they have to do to survive and what they do to, and and how they live their lives. Um, It's just, it's one of the few films that really surprises you at every turn and you don't get that 
very much. Like Christina was saying, things in Hollywood are so formulaic. We've talked about it before. Um, you know, Hollywood, Broadway, you know, a lot of storytelling is very formulaic, but when you take a chance on something that is, it might not necessarily be new. South Korean film obviously is not new. It's new to a lot of people here in the US and you take a chance on it and you put it out there, people are gonna love it. The things that do well are the original inventive things and the things that you take a risk on instead of just putting out the same formulaic crap all the time. Yeah, there is good things to the formula because you can't subvert expectations without it because the expectations are all based around this formula. There is a language to filmmaking. There is a language to, like, uh, the best way I equate it to is if you're reading a comic book. The comic books usually start off and they start building tension. The way they do that is they'll show a bunch of little broken up pieces of photo. And as the tension rises or as the superheroes start fighting or the climax is approaching, the panels that they draw are bigger on the page until you finally get to the climax of it. And it's the whole double-sided page of the comic and it's a bigger picture. It's a different, that, that's a, some, there's a science to that. There's a language to that, that comic book illustrators use so that they can naturally build tension in people's minds. Film does that the same way with lighting and different types of shots and angles and how they start pacing and everything. It all builds and there's a formula to it but when you're able to understand how the audience, the general audience, perceives that formula and reads that language, you can subvert it and confuse people. And I think that's what Parasite did, where they, they kind of took their own formula and had the whole different thing that's finally starting to sync up with American audiences, but it's still fresh for American audiences. So for us, it's totally crazy. I'm curious how people that watch tons of Korean movies already. I'm sure that they still loved this movie, but I'm curious if they were like, is that really the best one though? You know, cause I've already seen eight others like it or something like that, but. Um, I mean, Christina loved it and you know, she's, she selected it. She could have selected any of his other films on um, that are available on Hulu now, um, but she selected Parasite. Um, Very but true. I, I think I think it's it's just such a solid piece of filmmaking. The the cinematography was beautiful and creepy. Um, that scene when they're retelling um, story of the first time uh, the little boy had a seizure because he saw the creepy husband uh, from the basement sneaking up. When he pops up um, in the retelling. You just see his eyeballs. That is so scary. That is gonna haunt my dreams for a long time. It's just, <laughs> it's so scary. And it's not like a horror film, it's not. Um, but that is a truly terrifying moment. Like a horror film, but everything written a comedy until it's not. Yeah. Until it's not a comedy anymore and it's not a social commentary, it's, suddenly makes a switch, a hard switch once that guy escapes from the basement and all this crazy stuff starts happening and the kid gets his head smashed with the rock. That's where it all of a sudden switches to being 
from being this weird social commentary comedy. But the whole time, all the way through, they're filming it as if it's this big horror drama. So I think that tone of it really lended to the comedy in such a way, too. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't expect it to have comedic elements either. Like, I didn't, it's, it's uh, you know, advertised as a dark comedy um, when you look it up. But I, I didn't know that going into it. I just knew, I was like, oh, Parasite, you know, it won the Oscar. It's, it's you know, a huge hit. I'm excited to see what it's all about. I didn't know that it was advertised as a dark comedy. So the first time I'm sitting there laughing at the beginning of it, I was like, is this supposed to be funny? Like, this is, <laughs> I, it caught me completely off guard. Yeah, it's one of those movies that I think caught everyone off guard. So anyone who watched it was like, this isn't what I was expecting. Boom. Some uh, expectations converted. Yeah. There we go. So, what are uh, some of the stats on the film? Well, a lot of the stats are in Korean when I look them up. But it came out in May of 2019 at the Cannes Film Festival and in South Korea nationwide uh in korean so you're gonna have to watch it with subtitles spoiler alert americans uh the budget for it was 20.5 billion won which is the korean currency uh which translates to about 11.4 million dollars which is nothing when you think about it 11.4 million is a very small budget for an american film Uh, And at box office, it brought in $264.3 million American. So walloping success, made over $200 million profit in America. So pretty wild. One of the films that we've talked about on the podcast so far, just because of the craziness. And of course, too, it's got all these accolades. It's got... Awards out the wazoo, uh, including Oscar of the Year, Best best Picture, so. Um, so I, I think also you were telling me before the podcast that HBO is going to put up a series, same name, Parasite. So there's a, there's a Parasite series in the works by the same creators. Uh, essentially, it's to fill in all the weird gaps in the films, because the film does jump ahead a little bit. Uh, And it states that the series will also be called Parasite, and it will explore the stories that happen in between the sequences in the film. So I'm sure it will be like a limited series. HBO is really great with that stuff, where it does like six episodes or eight episodes, and it just kind of like fills in all these weird gaps. I imagine there would be two great episodes towards the end, just showing the dad living in the basement, seeing how he made it. You never actually find out in the end. Spoiler alert, here we go. The dad winds up camping out in the basement after killing the rich father. Uh, And the son kind of imagines this fantasy life of becoming rich and famous and buying the house and then freeing his dad and overcoming being in the lower class and <coughs> he never does. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a fantasy in his mind. So Yeah. Yeah, I I think they can do so much 
with, with this limited series or, you know, what, however much they do of, you know, you can find out more about, um, I think Moonsung is the original housekeeper's name. Um, and uh, you can find out so much about what happened to her and her husband. How did it come to be that he lived in the basement? What yeah. happened to her when she got dismissed? Like, how did, what happened to the husband? Like, for those couple days before they got found out by the Parasite family, like, there's so much that they can talk about um, yeah. and show. I think it's, it's going to be really fascinating and interesting. Um, obviously, hope, hopeful that it's the same cast um, that comes back to do it. Um, and obviously, and it has to be. With that stuff. Hmm? HBO is pretty good with that stuff. I'm sure it would be like the same cast and the same producers and people behind it. Yeah. Um, and hopefully it's still, it's done in Korean. They don't try and do like an English version. I don't think that's necessary. Um, no, they don't need that. They don't need that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really hopeful though that now there's a whole new world of films that have like been been opened up to to people that would normally not watch them or hear about them or know anything about them um and hopefully that you know come award show season they get the recognition that they deserve you know yeah and just like christina was talking about too it might pave an avenue for lower budget films things that aren't just so big in hollywood because you have films like Moonlight and you have films like Parasite that aren't direct products of Hollywood, LA-based movie making with $200 million budgets. Um, and you have, you know, it might pave an avenue for those smaller budget projects that are just far exceptional in terms of like being quality art pieces. And the Oscars are just throwing awards at the biggest successes which too is another question because how far will the oscars go or will they always try to strike a balance because if we, if we really want to talk about movie successes here why hasn't avengers endgame won every oscar because it made billions of dollars far surpassing any other movie like ever well, well, if you look at the history, though, of Oscars, they don't always pick the highest grossing film. Um, that's not necessarily their... They, I think when you look at the history of, like, the films that they've chosen and nominated and stuff like that, um, sometimes, you know, the films that they choose are, you know, they're quote-unquote independent films because they were not in like a wide release you know theatrically they had like independent releases here and there so that they could get nominated they're still high budget they still have big names in them um but it's not necessarily the highest grossing film a lot of times i feel like they choose films whether or not they actually like them they I, it seems to me almost like they're a bunch of like old white men that sit around a table and go, what film can we choose to make us seem like we're intelligent and smart and artsy? Like that's what I think goes into <laughs> choosing Oscar films. There's definitely huh? a politics that goes into it because if there's an actor that 
would obviously become hugely successful and become a huge asset to the Hollywood industry. You, like you have Jennifer Lawrence, who, you know, what does she have an Oscar for? Doesn't she have an Oscar? Uh, Silver Linings Playbook. Right. Fuck that movie. It was like, eh, it was okay. It was good. Did she deserve an Oscar? I don't know if she deserved it more than the other people in the running with her. And I've seen every other movie that Jennifer Lawrence has ever been in, but I cannot say that she would be as widely successful as she is today if she hadn't won an Oscar at such a young age. So the politics of that is if this, if we give this Oscar to this actress here and now, she will become a huge moneymaker for Hollywood. And any movie we put her in, no matter how terrible she is in it, will make money. I mean, yes, there obviously is that side of politics. And like, even look at the year that um, Jennifer Aniston did the movie Cake. Um, people are talking about how brilliant, you know, her performance was, whatever. And she and her team, I think they campaigned pretty hard. And that's what you do during award season. You campaign hard. You suck up to get the nomination, to get the award, whatever. I don't remember if she was actually nominated or not, but like Marianne Cotillard, was was nominated she for that year i don't remember what film it was for she was nominated she didn't campaign and she won um so i don't you know sometimes the politics does play out and sometimes it doesn't awards are strange like i feel like they're good in some ways they're not good in other ways i don't know if we're ever going to completely get rid of them i don't know if we should but um as long as award season keeps bringing movies like Parasite, Moonlight, bringing those movies to the forefront, then I think it's a good thing to keep them around. Yeah, it's especially when there's a few years of movies that, you know, you hear that they win the Oscar and you're like, okay, sure. But something like Parasite, and this is credit any Oscar winning movies as well, because, you know, there's merit to all of them. But sometimes you're like, this movie really deserved it more. Even though it's a lower budget film, there's no mega stars in it. You know, nobody in this movie is super famous. It deserved the award. And it's nice when, it's not like it's an underdog, it kind of is, but it's nice when the underdog Yeah. So. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're not making any goofy jokes for me to to end it on, so. <laughs> it cut me off, but I just said, where's my Oscar? Because I'm the underdog. Oh, there we go. All right. And so anyway, for the AFC podcast. <laughs> is that a good time to end it? <laughs> I humbly accept this award on behalf of the AFC podcast. What is that? This is uh, Atreus from God of War, the video game. Okay. Yeah, so for all you podcasters that are listening and not watching, that's what Jim is. Jim is now holding up uh, Kratos from God of War as his winning statue. This is the only Oscar I want. <laughs> and the only Oscar I need. Okay. 
Well, we'll let you live out your, your Oscar and Kratos fantasies. Um, we're going to get going here now. <laughs> For the AFC podcast, just a reminder, you guys can watch us on YouTube where you can see all of the awards that Jim likes to hold up. You can listen to us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Oh, yeah, you should see Jim holding them up now. Um, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and CastBox. Um, please like, subscribe, watch all the episodes. My name's Victoria Fragnito. And don't forget to tune in and watch all of Christina Reyes' content as well because she has a ton of great stuff out there. We're going to put all the links into the podcast so you guys can check them out. Thank you again for tuning in, and I'm Jim Galizia. We'll see you guys next time. Welcome to the AFC Podcast. My name is Jim Galizia. My name is Victoria Fragnito. Today we're going to have our day player, Phil Capadora, Tim Dowd, Nora Berman.